So I just finished this week um, a book, it's a poem, that I've, I think I've read four or five times. It's called The Comedy by Dante Alighieri. And it's probably the most famous poem, or certainly one of the most famous poems in the world. Um, it's an important one. It's a Christian poem, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's, a, it's an epic poem, which means it tells a grand story with lots of players and lots of interesting people, many of them historical figures, many of them literary figures, uh, a number of them just simply mythical figures, but all people, uh, people of the area that Dante, as a, a pilgrim, so the, the, it's written by a guy named Dante, who's one of the handful of folks in history that go by their first name, just simply the first name basis, you know. Maybe you can think of a couple others, but he's, he's one of the handful. And um, so Dante, the poet, is writing a, a, a poet, a song. He's writing a song, a long song, about 14,000 lines plus, um, about a journey that a guy named Dante makes, which is clearly himself, uh, in the middle of his life. It's the, it's the middle of his life, and he's lost. In fact, he's lost in the forest, and there, there, there are enemy creatures around, and he's scared and doesn't know what to do. And from heaven comes help sent by his beloved Beatrice, or Beatrice, it sounds a lot better in Italian than it is Beatrice in English, but Beatrice sends, by God's help, sends um, a guide to the, to the pilgrim, we call him in the story. And, of course, that guide is a pagan, it's Virgil. It's the, it's, the, it's the Roman poet, Virgil, who actually leads Dante the pilgrim through the circles of hell, kind of dealing with all the different uh, punishments and things that God's inflicting upon him, uh, upon the people in hell, and, and then finally gets to crawl down Satan's tail, and then up and takes a boat over to Mount Purgatory, and then works his way up around Mount Purgatory until he finally gets up to heaven, at which point he starts flying. And, of course, Virgil can't be there, so he's got to leave off Virgil because Virgil doesn't belong in heaven. He's a pagan. Uh, but he's met by Beatrice, his, his kind of beloved, and then she takes him up finally in, until, you know, St. Benedict takes him the last couple of steps of the way. So he has these, the whole time he has, he has guides, right? The, the pilgrim has guides. Anyway, so, that's, so the, the story is supposed to encapsulate all kind of Christian understanding of the world in three parts, hell, purgatory, and heaven. And most of us look at that and say, oh, this, you know, purgatory is a bunch of bunk, and okay, sure. Um, but don't let that stop you. Uh, that, that shouldn't really be a problem for you. And, and in fact, I think of all three, they, you know, they're called canticles. So the, there are a hundred, there are a hundred songs, hundred cantos is what, what Dante calls them. And they're divided up in thirds, basically. It's just the first third gets the extra one. So you get, 40, you get 34 cantos in hell, 33 in purgatory, and 33 in heaven. And, um, the nice thing about this particular work is that those cantos are about 140 lines long. So it's 140 lines of poetry, and they're bite-sized. You can do that, but you'll still find they're difficult. They're dense, and they're full of stuff you don't know, and they're full, full of references, because Dante was from Florence, an important city, and there are many famous Florentines. Um, but he has a lot to say about Florence and the politics of Florence, not only in his own day, but in generations prior as well. And all that, along with Christian history, along with philosophy, along with the shape of the entire cosmos and everything else, kind of works its way into this poem. Okay, so it's, it's an important one. Like I said, I've read it three or four or five times probably, and I hope to read it that many times more for sure. Right? It's, it's that kind of thing. Like, it's just a book for my life, and, and I hope that you have similar books of, of similar top-tier quality uh, you can you can press into and of course there's a, I think it's a quote from Spurgeon he says you know visit books all the time but live in the one right? live in the scriptures that's where we live that's the book that God feeds us with 
uh, as, as his own word, but God feeds us in a lot of ways with a lot of books. Uh, and that's kind of what I want to get at this morning. Uh, I almost did the entire uh, education hour on Dante and the comedy. Thinking that's, and it's worth doing that. I think it would be worth taking a number of times to talk through this thing, but you probably you don't know it very well. That's my guess. And I don't really want to sit up here and encourage you to go, go grab Dante and, and go read him, although I hope you do, and if you do, let me know, we can talk about it and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a challenge. And like I say, I'm, 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 every time I finish that poem, I feel like I've accomplished something. Like, it's, it's not without accomplishment to, to get through that. Anyway, so there's that. I also found this book by Rod Dreher, and I don't know if any of you know Rod Dreher or not. Um, he's written uh, most recently a book called Live Not By Lies, I think, which is a uh, discussion of communist lies and Americans that believe them and pro- propagate them and such. Um, anyway, this one I found is called Don- How Dante Can Save Your Life, <laughs> which I was immediately like, so first of all, it's Rod Dreher, so it's kind of interesting, and it's about Dante, so it's like double interesting. And his experience of kind of picking up the poem, the comedy, and how God used it to totally modify his life, which will happen if you deal with great literature. Now listen, you who read, it's easy for us to get caught up in kind of cotton candy reading. Easy reading, all the time, entertaining, that kind of stuff. You bet. And there's time for that. But there's time to pick up bigger, heavier books. And not just by their size, uh, and not even just by their reputation, but there are a handful of books out there that change people's lives because they're in, they, they connect with the things of life. Uh, one comment he had in here is he had never read uh, The Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. Another kind of, that's a Greek poem, an enormous poem, epic poem, just like Virgil was an epic poet, just like Dante was an epic poet, so we're kind of dealing with these enormous songs, uh, but he says, you know, I started reading with my son, as the son's, he had to read it for his senior year, or something like that, the, the Odyssey, and he says, you know, I, I never wanted to read it, wasn't, didn't really care, but then when, once we got into it, it was like, that was, that was more real, realer, than his own life, he, he's into the story, he's like, oh, there's, there's more going on in Odysseus's life. Um, that's valuable and instructive for me than he would ever thought. And I think that's how literature works. That's particularly how great literature works. And so I want to encourage you to read better books. Read better books. Choosing, you know, we, we as a panoply, and I, I get it, I have a stack of books I'm choosing from as well, and anyone who's a reader gets that, right? You've got to make decisions. Choose better books, right? Really purpose after, after quality books that will not only expose you and help you understand life and history, but help you walk with the Lord, help you understand who you are better. And sometimes that's reading theology, simply reading doctrine and trying to work through theological things. That's awesome. Abby's into that right now. She's taking some classes on it, so she'll be reading doctrine, which has its own glory, to be sure. Uh, But there's other literature as well. Okay, so on reading books. Why is reading so hard? Why is it so hard? Yeah. I suspect that uh, people don't make the time for quiet time, and there are, they allow multiple distractions. Okay, so quietness is one of them, right? Uh, it's, we, have, we're, we, we organize our lives such that we're distracted constantly. Right? The notifications going off, this and that. This, it's like very, very rarely do we have kind of focused, quiet time, though that, I think, is an important reality of life, certainly as it comes to, like, prayer and, and, and uh, uh, reading the scriptures and meditating on them, things like that as well. Not, not unlike the exercise of the mind when in corporate prayer to, to thoughtfully make our thoughts what they ought to be. 
That's interesting. That's, that's a good connection as far as the kind of energy it takes in prayer, especially if you're praying with somebody else or praying as a congregation. There's a, there's a lot of energy you got to put into that to like stay on track. You guys, right? I'm up here praying. That's pretty easy. Uh, you're out there trying to like connect with that prayer and, and, and be part of it. And that takes some energy. It really does. Uh, what about reading specifically, though? Uh, there's the quiet time. There's the kind of... You know, but what about books themselves? This book, by the way, this this uh, drear one I found over at the glorious little book nook at Cathedral Coffee. If you haven't been to Cathedral Coffee's book nook, stop in there. It's like you can't lose. Uh, they got all kinds of good stuff there, and it's people or it's published or filled by uh, Windows booksellers over in St. John's, which I recommend heartily. You get to it's a tremendous little bookstore. Uh, again, you can't lose. Everything in there is like gold. Uh, so, where's Windows booksellers in the book nook right here in town? But back to reading. Why is it so hard to pick up a book and read it, as opposed to other things? What's, what other things might be there? You know, it shouldn't be too hard. So you have to read it and then think about it, and then maybe like kind of even apply it. Okay, so it's kind of the broader process, not just of reading, but of digesting and assimilating it. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah, you can watch TikTok for 15 seconds, like, cool, okay. Right? Or, or maybe maybe if you really got the, the horsepower going, you can, you know, watch a 15-minute YouTube video on something. Right? But to sit down and engage a book more, to sit down and engage a poem, that just takes an enormous amount of energy. It takes an enormous amount of focus and energy to do that. And I think we live in a time where people don't have that kind of stuff. They don't have that kind of focused energy. I think we do for particular things, but overall we're just thinking lazy. We're just really, really lazy. Uh, and reading isn't for the lazy. It's, it's some work. It's some labor. Though I think as you do that work, especially as you work on a book, you kind of put energy in at the beginning, and then it opens up to you. And it's not the same kind of work it was at the beginning. So every book's different as far as all that goes. But the labor of getting into a book, uh, and sometimes even the labor of finishing, we were talking about Moby Dick this morning, uh, where I think I had to start Moby Dick four or five times to read it once. I had to keep starting. It starts so well, and then like I, you know, hit knee deep in mud or whatever happens, and, and don't finish it up. But then, you know, books are like that. Uh, there are plenty of unread books uh, or half-read books, and so on. Okay, but reading is a difficulty, uh, partially because our age is focused on video. We want to see something, put it in front of my eyes. Uh, and he said, "Well, the book's in front of your eyes." I say, "Yeah, but I gotta like my eyes gotta like do stuff <laughs> to decode this, not just kind of receive what's coming in." And that's a video's glorious. This, I mean, I don't, but, but God also, remember, God's given us not um, a YouTube channel, right? Uh, he's given us a book. First of all, he's given us his son, a person. And we have a book of that person pointing to that person, which I'd recommend Luke 24, where the disciples are on the, on the way to uh, Emmaus, and Jesus joins them. They can't recognize him. And uh, he finally, finally, he says, he opens to them all the parts of the scripture that have to do with him. Like, the scripture has to do with, with Jesus. And trying to read, then, the scripture as centered on Jesus and, and ministering Jesus is important for us as we think of the Bible as a book, which is what I want to get to. So God's given us a book. And a book has words. Books have chapters, and books have sections, and books that, you know, there's just kind of common things about books. And the Bible is a book. I remember a friend of mine, Chuck Worrell, saying the, the Bible can't be more than a book until it's a book. It's got to be a book to be more than a book, uh, and uh, I think that's exactly right. So, as a book, 
you can read it. You read books. Uh, but you can also study it. Right? So we, that in studying books is something that we probably don't often do as adults all that much. I think in school we're put through having to study books and kind of derive, take knowledge out of them and assimilate that knowledge and have it ready for a test or whatever, that kind of thing. So we're studying the book and memorizing stuff in there. But I think with the Bible we have to do both. We have to read the Bible and we have to study the Bible. Okay, so what are the, what's the difference between reading and studying and how would that look as it comes to the Bible? Okay, so yeah, reading is, tends to be more cursory. You're, you're just kind of taking it in, maybe en masse. Um, but then studying is a little more focused, right? A little more uh, specific work. So dissecting, which is to say kind of cutting things up and seeing what's there, maybe. Opening it up and seeing what maybe just below the surface. Or, or maybe how things are connected more. Like when you're reading, your mind's going to make connections anyway, you know, whether through the you know, different parts of the Bible or other literature, or your own life, or whatever else, right? You, your mind's connected out anyway. But when you're studying the Bible, I think you're studying those connections. You're really trying to uncover them and, and understand them, where in reading, not necessarily as much, right? Not, not, not quite as focused on that. What else as far as the difference between reading and studying the Bible in particular? student in a liberal arts college, and we studied the Bible. And I, I appreciate that, because I learned a tremendous amount about the Bible from this you know, relatively godless professor in the class. But it's not the same thing as studying the Bible to feed upon God, to be fed by Jesus Christ, the life-giving flesh and blood of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So that's part of both reading and studying the Bible for Christians, and we're seeking the Lord. We're seeking His face in the book that He's given. Right, that we should we should draw near to him and, and, and that he would minister to us. And so prayer that the Holy Spirit would be at work. Prayer that God would reveal himself. Prayer that we'd have hearts ready to receive. Because uh, often enough we don't. Right? And this is all a spiritual reality of the Bible. And I think it's a spiritual reality for every other book too, but it's more focused and purposeful with the Bible because that's God's book to communicate himself to us. The Odyssey isn't that, as glorious as the Odyssey might be. The comedy isn't that, though it's a little closer. Uh, Right, but the, the seeking the Lord in is definitely a factor that's very important uh, for our study and reading of the Bible. Other comments about reading ver- reading versus studying? Yeah, darling. Thank you. 
So we. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so translations, at least at this level, we realize that we're dealing with an ancient document, or actually a collection of ancient documents, and uh, we want to, and not without cause, say, well, this is God's love letter to me. Okay, well, let's get you out of there for a second. Let's just make it God's love letter, and we'll, we'll deal with you later. Um, right? And, and, and start to deal with these ancient texts as ancient texts that are meaningful and intended to impact us by the Holy Spirit, right? But there's work involved in that distance that's there between the text and ourselves, and the versions, that, and version just means translation. So the versions that are available, I think you do what, you do well to have as many around you as you can. Uh, that's, we'll get more to the tools uh, in, in a moment. Calvin, you had something? Okay. Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, so capturing and taking something like a paraphrase, like the message, um, to get the story, to kind of get the breadth of the thing, I think that's, that's useful. So I think one thing about reading books and reading the book, the Bible, is capturing the breadth and the beauty of the story. There's, there's, a, there's a breadth, a broadness to it, and there's a, there's a story that runs through. And as I mentioned, Jesus in the Bible is the story. Messiah is the story, right? It's all around him. His coming, his, the advent, the arrival of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, the departure of Jesus, the current reign of Jesus, and the return of him, and ushering in the fullness of his So that's the story, right? And it's wrapped up in the Israel. It's wrapped up in the ancient Near East. And it's wrapped up in the Greece. And it's wrapped up in the Rome. And there's all this stuff kind of wrapped into the story. But that's the breadth of it. And that's the beauty of it. And reading a book, that's kind of what you want. You want the breadth and beauty of the thing. I think that's a reading aspect of it versus a studying aspect of it. Right? There's a joy, and I hope, and I, I, I trust, is you can read long passages, many chapters, or even whole books at a time. You're going to miss tons of details. Okay, but you're going to see other details and other connections that you wouldn't otherwise. So being able to read the Bible is important. Not just study it, but read it. Conversely, it's, it's important not just to read the Bible. So, okay, we take out your reading thing, here's my chapter, boom, did that, did the psalm, okay, got done today. That's good, that's good. But you also need to study it. You need to actually be a student of this book, and that takes different skills, different tools, than just being a reader. So which books in your life have you studied? What books have you studied? Anything to say. <laughs> I mean, what are books you study? Certainly like nutrition books, right? There are books in school. That's what you're doing. You're just deriving information. You're pulling information out of these things and trying to keep it ordered and so you can use it in life or so you can use it on the test or both. Um, you know, so that's, what, what books have you studied like that? Come on, this shouldn't be hard. Hamlet. Okay, good. That's interesting. That's, so that's not even a textbook, right? We have a play um, going on there. So uh, the studying of a play is fantastic and interesting. Um, I heard something. <laughs> what did you say? Cookbook. Cookbook. There you go. Studying cookbook. Sure. Even for, like, just memorizing and keeping things together. I don't know. That's uh, Yeah. So certain books are made to be, like, just consolidations of information, right? Like reference books and things like that. And those are precisely the kind of books you study. You know, very few of us sit around reading reference books, although sometimes, you know, it's fun to do. It's fun to read the dictionary, for instance, and just kind of, like, sit there and read through and find stuff. So, but, but, again, you're kind of studying it when you're doing that. It's a little more of a study than just, like, a read, because there's not really a story in the dictionary. All right? It's not that kind of book. Yeah. Well, an interesting one that I studied is I'm more and more 
I almost brought it. I have two copies of it. So yeah, he's got a book called How to Read a Book, Mortimer Adler, and it has, which is great because it has various chapters that deal with different kinds of books and different ways of reading, and it's fascinating. It's, it's a wonderful book to read. Um, I remember in a uh, classical conversations training, we were talking about how to read a book, and there was some little section from Adler, um, and you know he says, well, how do you get it? When you get a book, you read the title, read the back page, look at the table of contents, see the notes, like familiarize yourself with the book. And one of the ladies at the meeting, she's like, that's the last thing I do when I get a book. I don't want to know anything about it. I just want to, like, start it and go, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's that kind of book, right? If you're reading a story, if you have a, you know, a novel or a story or maybe even a play or whatever, yeah, you want to just kind of crash in and experience it and not know about it. But that's, that's that kind of reading. If you're studying a book, why well, that's something quite different. You kind of want to know everything you can stepping into, right, to understand what's going on in the book. So, there's, again, difference between reading and studying that way. Exactly. And, and so those kind of books have tools built into the book that help you access the material and know how it's organized and arranged, uh, which, when again, if you're reading just a story, who cares? <laughs> you just want to, like, go live that story and, and go through it. So, yeah. So when it comes to text, um, not, not a reading of a story, but an informational book, I often like to know more about the author's background totally. so I know what point of That's very helpful. So kind of having a handle on the author and where they're coming from is important. One of the, my professors in college said, who, pays, who, who signs his paycheck? And to figure out who signs the guy's paycheck, you'll learn a lot about the book. Okay, that's the same idea, right? right. Yeah. I was going to say, that's actually true about the story, too. I just mm-hmm. finished reading um, Brave New World. Hated it, hated it. Like halfway through, I was like, I hate this book. And, um, but then I, I actually did a little bit of research and found out. So it was written to be a satire against, like, H.G. Wells' utopian stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and then it made a whole lot more sense, even though I still didn't like it. But it moved it up from a two-star to a three-star. But, <laughs> but, but just knowing that actually helped, even sure. the story. Sure, Right? It was not a textbook, but right. it helped. You bet. You bet. You bet. Um, interesting. I just finished reading it, too, and didn't hate it. But, but I didn't like it as much. I read it years ago. Um, and kind of, anyway, interesting. Uh, various books to read. So we got the author. We have kind of the context of things. And studying, you want to yeah, get as many points of contact and as much traction as you can, um, I think, just to engage the details and the, the knowledge that that book's offering as we study it. Right? As we study the scripture, we have a particular, peculiar book. It's a book, but it's a peculiar book. It's peculiar because, at least if nothing else, it has one author. God is the author of this book, which, which means, by the way, that God takes responsibility for what it says. It's his word. Now, I will argue that every word of every book ever written says exactly what God wants it to say, period. But God doesn't take responsibility for every book ever written. He does take responsibility for this book. He said, this is mine. My name's attached to it. My, my, this is my word. Right, so we have, in the Bible, one author, but then we have the curiosity of, 66 books and various authors and stretched out through many many centuries of time our last not the most recent family camp where we had glorious Dennis Turi teaching us but before that we had less glorious Tim Preswick teaching us about um, about books right about reading kind of what we're doing right now but like trying to kind of break down different aspects of 
books and the biblical study and how we approach it and what kind of tools we need and that sort of thing. So there's a little bit of that kind of coming in right now. Um, Darlene had mentioned some tools. It's important for us because some books are written in English last year, and their context is our own, in which case we probably miss a ton. Uh, older books help us see things because they approach things differently and help us see our own blind spots often, and the Bible's like that as well. Uh, what are some of the tools specifically to the Bible that we have that would be valuable for our study and our reading of the Bible? Okay, a dictionary, a concordance. Okay, so a dictionary is a, um, a book that defines things. So you want to look up a word and kind of see what it means. Okay, you got that. It's a Bible dictionary. They're a little more expansive than regular, you know, the lexicon or just defines a word, kind of defines a concept oftentimes. Is a Bible dictionary very helpful. Um, a concordance. What's a concordance do? Besides, like, keep your door open when you want it to stay open. Uh, Where is that you? That's it. So it tracks down the words and, and the places they're used. So you can say, okay, well, I want to, here's this word in the passage I'm studying, uh, imputation, say. It's a word to study. And then where else is it used? And it helps you track that down. So it's a very, super useful tool uh, as far as that goes, to be able to see the usage of a word. What else besides maybe Bible dictionaries and concordances? What other tools do we have? Okay, good. That's the, for the beginning of God. To be able to God, to look to him and say, this is your word. Let it rest in me. Open both my eyes that I can see glorious things from your law. And uh, so, no one think of God as a tool, uh, but he is certainly a, an efficient and uh, powerful reality in our lives as we open the scripture to study it and to read it, that we should receive from it. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good way to think of it. The, the, the more literal translations are better for studying, and the, the less literal translations are better for reading. They help me out. So that's you know having different translations for different uh, different purposes as you're accessing a text. Yeah. I think you more want to err on the side of actually what the Bible says. You can like translate. You can improve as far as translating it and actually interpreting for yourself. Good. So there, I think that you're onto something there. Um, yeah, and I'll just maybe leave it there. Uh, there's, it's, it's not necessarily easy versus hard, but they're just different tools. Like anyone who's translated anything, anyone who has any experience translating anything, let alone ancient texts, but even just Spanish from today or whatever, you know, um, you can translate things different ways. You can get it across and get the idea across more clearly sometimes not being literal than being literal. Right, and, and everyone knows that if they've had any experience with just language generally trying to translate it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't therefore take something like the NIV or even like a paraphrase, like the message, which isn't even a translation. It's a paraphrase, of, you know, and say that's that's junk. Just, you need to do the work and get a literal translation. I don't think that's quite it either. I think we need to kind of have all those in hand. And every time you translate, you make decisions. You make decisions for your reader how it's going to be presented every time, inescapably so. So, therefore, any single translation never is going to be good enough. It's always going to you know, involve in, uh, decisions of the translator as far as what this text means and what they, what they think they're going to you know, convey and all that. So, having multiple versions is a, is a value. Yeah. 
Okay, well, now we're getting at it. Yeah, so there's a tool, like, an interlinear is just a book, a Bible that has whatever the original text is, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and then the English translation right by it, so you can kind of coordinate the words or, or see what's going on there. Um, Anuhe is doing a, a Beowulf this year, one of her first, her first read for school, and uh, the Beowulf text I have has the modern English on one side and the ancient old English really on the other, so you can kind of look back and forth and kind of compare those harder page to page, right? Interlinear makes it even easier because it's all kind of right there for you. Um, so, and that, that's a tool for you to kind of step back into these ancient tongues, in the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, don't forget it. Uh, that, that's what God revealed, these, his, his word. Right? God, God, in fact, Hebrew is a fairly narrow language for one people. Aramaic, much broader. Uh, and Greek, far broader than all of that. Right? In keeping with the Old Covenant and the expansive nature of the New Covenant and so on, the language is tied with all that. But they're distant from us. And some of us have the leisure to take a few years of seminary, and, you know, not like a few years does a whole lot for you, I'll tell you, uh, to try to get a hold of these, these languages to be able to use them. Uh, but it's always a struggle. There, anyway, there, there, yeah, the languages are something that are hard for us and scary for us, but at the same time, they're glorious and they pay some dividends. Right? It helps to be able to, to, to even to dabble in the original languages. And you can do that with a lot of tools at your fingertips without a whole lot of, you know, anxiety <laughs> around having to learn a language. You got hands here. I don't know if it has a name, but some sort of a word study tool, like where you can take a word that you don't know because you don't speak Greek, but and it tells you, like, all the different ways it was used or different meanings it has in different contexts or something. Like that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, not a thesaurus. Yeah, yeah, what they call Bible dictionaries or uh, theological dictionaries oftentimes are just that. They're just these lengthy, lengthy word studies saying, here's the use of this word all the way back from classical Greek into the New Testament and beyond, um, and then how the Hebrews translated from the Old Testament. And, you know, so there's a lot of material on these words, and you can get caught up. I was reading a long article on the word, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and I sat there for an hour and a half, maybe two hours, reading and working on this one word, and <laughs> someone comes out, and I was talking about the word, and they said, well, let me see the, uh, how Eugene Peterson translates that. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think you're tracking. Uh, I don't think you understand what we're trying to do over here. Um, because it doesn't matter what Eugene Peterson has to say on something like that. Anyway, because it's a technical issue of a word that when you're paraphrasing, you're not even worried about the words. You're just worried about the overall meaning. Right, that's what a paraphrase that gives you the overall meaning of the passage. But if you're dialing into a word, the more literal the translation, the more helpful it's going to be. And the translation only helps you so far because usually it's just a word. Right? But, having, but be, having tools where you can press into those and, and understand the language better. Uh, and again, that's, that's right at your fingertips. It doesn't take much of any knowledge of the grammar or the words of the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic. You can get it pretty, pretty simplified and still have a lot of information that you can gain around whatever words you're kind of pressing into. So word study kind of books or theological dictionaries is definitely a tool. Um, yeah, Amy. Using the Blue Letter Bible app a lot, and it has all of these tools Yeah. Yeah, so just that, like Blue Letter Bible, or um, with your one of your gifts to me at Christmas, one of these years back, I bought Logos Bible software, even better. Um, it, just, it just pulls together so much stuff, and you can kind of press out in all sorts of ways. So the electronic tools are enormously powerful. But I think there's, there's also the same kind of pitfall to it as TikTok and YouTube, right, where you kind of just, the information's right there. It's like, bam, got it. As opposed to what it takes for years of study. Years of study does things that, 
immediate access to information can never do. Right? I hope you get that. Uh, and I hope you get it when it comes to your Bible study. That years of pouring through the text and praying through the text will do a great deal more good than getting a specific beat on this Greek word and what it means. Right? And oftentimes, those kind of things go to our head anyway. We start thinking we're real smart, and, and, uh, and that, that, that spiritual pride is something that's going to also come into play in your Bible reading and Bible study in a negative way uh, as well. So there are pitfalls around. Uh, but anyway, uh, any, any other comments here? Yeah. So, I mean, the last, often the last thing you go to, but it's, you've got to be careful with it, but commentaries, right? Uh, going back to what I said about other texts and learning about the author, so I know what to bring in, understanding the historical context and what's going on at the time of the writing can bring the insight into what the intent of the, of the letter or... or the document. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So history is a big one, right? We, uh, God didn't give us a book uh, that just descended from heaven apart from context. In fact, he gave us a book that requires a great deal of context uh, from the ancient world. And so using tools like commentators, commentator is just a person who comments on the text. Uh, they go through and comment on it. Uh, and so oftentimes their comments are going to locate things historically, deal with the kind of language things we're talking about, where they have just a lot more tools they're bringing to the text and can help you as you're trying to come to the text as well. And uh, I suggest not just your Reformed and Presbyterian commentators, but go get your Lutherans and go get your more ancient commentaries. Uh, I've been loving Jerome, by the way. He's got like this one-volume monster uh, through the Bible. And uh, it's, you know, so we're dealing with like a 4th century, 4th, 5th century Satan, and he, he sees things in his way, and it helps, right? That kind of has a freshness to looking back at his ancient commentators. Uh, that, anyway, they're useful. So commentators, getting us into the history and the language uh, of the Bible. So that's this thing about studying the Bible. Let me give you this, and then the last thing that we'll close with, which is start where you are and add to it. Start where you are in your Bible study, in your Bible reading, and add. Okay? What you're doing plus one. What you're doing plus one. Keep adding to it. You can't be where you're not. Right, I was telling my son this earlier in the week, but I remember sitting in the library uh, in, in college just having started to study Greek, just utterly fantasizing about the notion of being able to read that text, staring at the text, and you know, like two words out of it. Um, just, but having the fantasy and desire, I want to be able to read this language. I want to read the New Testament. And it seemed like impossible. Like there's no way to get there. Right? It's this fantasy way out there. But I tell you, with daily work and the blessing of God, things happen. God gives you gifts. So you students in particular, and you adults who should be better students than you are, day by day, little by little, God gives you tremendous gifts and builds them. And that goes for Bible study and Bible reading as well. And the blessings of Bible study and Bible reading, which are knowing God, knowing God, and being able to serve Him more faithfully. So start where you are and progress. Don't, don't lament about where you should be and that you're not, or something like that. That's not helpful. Start where you are and progress by the, by the grace of God. So I have a proposal for us. Um, that is that we read a book together. Besides the Bible, we read that often and talk about it and study it. And the book is J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and Liberalism was published 100 years ago next year. And um, he, I'll, I'll do an introduction and tell you more about the book and the, and the author and things like that. But it's a, it's a valuable book that I've not read, uh, though I've run into it everywhere I go and everything else, um, and think, well, what he's dealing with a hundred years ago and the goofiness and the apostasy of the Presbyterians at the time, we're dealing with very similar things right now. 
And I think there'll be a lot of low-hanging fruit for us just trying to think through woke stuff and, and racial stuff and all the stuff you know, smashing into the churches. They had other stuff 100 years ago, but the dynamics are similar. And I think we'll, we'll learn plenty. It's, and it's not a very big book. It's seven chapters, I think, or eight. Uh, so we can, what, what my plan is then is to bring an introductory lesson um, and then just go chapter by chapter. And even if you, don't, and, and if you don't read the book, which I hope you do, I think you'll still be able to sit through the discussion of those chapters and, and, and benefit so another one must needs read. But I'd like you to do that. I'd like you to kind of work on a habit of reading and studying a book together. And as we do it together, I think there's a camaraderie that will help us do it. Uh, actually help us finish the book together. So um, if you want, I can order a small gaggle of them. You can just kind of let me know who wants from, from Westminster Theological Bookstore, which I'd rather spend money at, even if it's a little more expensive, than Amazon, though you can get it there too. Uh, so if you want me to order you a book, we all have the same one. And, and if you're, you're writing it down, the, uh, the edition that we're looking at is published in 2009, and it has a forward by Carl Truman. So it has, you know... Makes his face on the front. Good-looking guy. Um, anyway, there's, so if you're worried about having the same edition that we all have, so we can say on page such and such, or, you know, that kind of thing, which kind of helps if you're all reading the book together. Let me know if you want me to get you one. Uh, if you want to get your own, go for it. And if you say, oh, I'm not going to read this thing, then just you can suffer through it. But I hope that you read through it, and I hope that we can gain plenty from one of the great teachers of the church, probably largely unknown to most of us, Jay Gresham Machen. Uh, in some sense, the founder of the Bible Presbyterian Church, um, and also the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, coming out of the mainline Presbyterians who were unbelieving. And he's fighting that fight in his day, and I think we have a similar fight in our day. Any, any thoughts or questions on that? Anybody excited to read a book? I am. Yeah, I've been wanting to read that one. So yeah, you're forcing my hand. Good. <laughs> it's fun to have your hand forced when reading books, and sometimes it's just the guy giving you one. Here, you're like, oh, okay, i got to read that now. And it somehow gets you have stacks of books you're going to read, but this one works its way in. So maybe that will be like uh, one of these for you. So uh, Christianity and liberalism, and I think we will not regret reading it together. Um, so come see me and let me know, and I'll just kind of keep a list of people that want me to buy, and I'll just, like I say, buy a gaggle tomorrow, and hopefully have them here by next week, um, where we can start at least an introductory lesson, and then start reading it together after that. So that, there's a proposal, kind of a plan, and um, I can sense your excitement. Let's, uh, let's pray.